Can we go to the Lord in a word of prayer just to begin today? Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for being a God who loved us enough to send your own son so that we could sing what we just sang, that he came and he died on the cross for our sins. And so that, Lord, we can, we can focus, and regardless of the troubles going on around us in our life, we know that we have that eternal life in you. And Lord, I want to bring to you to the request for, for Dawn Thrasher right now, who's whose hope is in her, in her eternity. But Lord, we pray for her right now. We know that you are the great physician. And as she has this surgery uh, coming up to remove this mask, Lord, our request is that you would free her of this cancer, that you would, would restore her back to health. But Lord, we also rest in you. Whatever your will is, we know that you have an eternity planned for her in heaven. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray just for, for others who may be going through similar things right now that we don't even know about. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to take all of those earthly concerns off of our plates today as we come to you, knowing that we can rest, knowing that we have an eternity in heaven with you. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, praise team, for, uh, for leading us in worship today as well. You know, there is a war going on between good and evil that's going on in our world today. And America is on the front lines of that of that war. But I would say that as a country, as a culture even, we, we've lost our compass to navigate the waters of, of relative morality. Have we not? And I would say too, it's not just our culture, but even our, our church. I'm not talking about heritage, but our church in the United States as well, as, as we'll see. And I know that last week I said that um, this week we would continue in Hebrews 11, but the more I got to think about it, in fact, it started with Amy asking me when we could do a baby dedication, and I thought there's no greater week than Sanctity of Life, and uh, uh, a week that, to do that, and the more I started thinking about that and praying about that, I felt at peace with taking the entire day to focus on this issue. And there are various issues related to the topic of the Sanctity of Life that, uh, that are in, in the spotlight today, they're, they're in focus, and very relevant to the cultural discussions that are going on. And so today I just chose three of them. Uh, there are more issues related to that, but there are three of them. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at, at the issues related to the sanctity of life that are prevalent today. And then look at the theological framework which, with which we need to start thinking through these issues and what the biblical responses would be for us. So let's begin with the issues. There are three issues that I'd like to, to look at. The first one is the issue of, of racism. The issue of racism. See, racism is, is an issue of the sanctity of life because, because at the heart of racism is a belief that ethnicity determines a person's value. Isn't that the root of the issue? That someone's ethnicity, their ethnical background could determine their, their value as a human being. And, uh, and so the idea is that some are worth more than others based on their eth eth ethnicity. Uh, in fact, we see this in the, in, in the front lines all the time. Uh, we see, in fact, uh, the main, one of the main things right now, we see issues of Black Lives Matter is bringing this issue to the forefront, right? And, uh, and we see this out there. But and when, I, when I looked up uh, the word Black Lives Matter to, to find um, uh, a, just a, a logo to put up on the screen for today, there are a lot of other Lives Matter movements that are going on at the same time. So I, I saw that there were blue lives matter. We saw some of those re referring to police. Uh, I saw some that all lives matter. 
Uh, we saw those. And believe it or not, even clown lives matter. Uh, but it's, it's true. I mean, we find all of these things out there that, and if you believe in the sanctity of life, then there is a sense in which you would say that all of these are correct, right? I mean, black lives matter. Yes. Uh, do do uh, blue lives matter? Talking about police? Yes. Do all lives matter? Yes. Even clown lives matter. I mean, without clowns, we would have no politicians. We would have no <laughs> referees, right? We would, all sorts of things we would be missing in life without clowns. Uh, and I say that in jest. But, but here's the problem. The problem with, with all of these is, is that it's usually not what's said that destroys. It's what's not said that destroys. It's, it's when, when you're saying X lives matter, what you're oftentimes saying well, X lives matter, you fill in the blank with whatever that is, matters more than, or, or, or whatever, and you, and you fail to realize all of the things that are going on, or even to recognize the hurt that some people are feeling in those cases, and we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful not to do that. And see, we always put a positive spin on things, and, and it's, it's just the way, the way things are. On both sides of every issue, it's always a positive spin. Take the issue of abortion, which we'll talk about in a minute. You have pro-life and pro-choice. No one calls themselves anti-life, right? No one says, I'm anti-life or anti-choice. I don't believe in a woman's rights. No one says that. It's always pro, pro, pro. And so it's not so, so many times the slogans that hurt. It's what's not being said. And, and I think we have to be very careful. And so the, the question boils down to, does ethnicity affect the value of a human being? What does the Bible say about that? And so we'll talk about that today. And we talk about uh, the issue of racism. The second issue I want to address today is the issue of abortion. Um, uh, the, the taking of a, a human life prior to, to natural birth. And, and there are questions that come up with this. Questions like, when is a human life valuable? At what point does a human life become valuable and why? Um, is a baby worth more because it is wanted? And so, there, see, this is the problem of, of, of not having a moral compass. And we start asking questions like this, and we don't know the answers. And when you have a subjective morality, then you don't have an answer. You don't have any framework by which to answer these questions. Uh, is a baby worth less if he or she is less likely to contribute to society? And we see people answering that uh, in the affirmative. Why? Because of the subjective morality. Um, and not having something. So where does the value of human life come from? And we want to talk about that from a biblical perspective. Instead of wallowing around in these questions with, with a more, without a moral compass. You know, here's some statistics that I found uh, regarding abortion. Just so we get an idea of, of the gravity of this. I've taken these from uh, Breakpoints uh, by Eric Metaxas. Um, did a study on these. And... Uh, and because he's respected in this in this realm, and so I, I wanted to look for the, the facts here. And here's one of one in America: one in three women will have an abortion by the age forty-five. Is a, a a little understanding of the scope of them. Eighty-five percent of them will be by unmarried women. Uh, just to, to to understand a little bit of what's going on here, connecting it to our first issue a little bit. Look at this: thirty-five percent of them are by African American women. And 21% are by Hispanic women. So right there, you've got 56% uh, by minorities. Um, and, and I'm sure that the numbers would continue for, to, to show there uh, as well. To give an idea what that means, um, what that means, 
one in seven Caucasian pregnancies will end in abortion, and one in two, let that sink in, one in two African-American pregnancies will end in abortion. Uh, this is, is targeting minorities, is it not? It, it is targeting, and, and, uh, and I, I believe, in fact, if you go to, the, to uh, what the founder of, of Planned Parenthood said, this was part of her goal, is to reduce the influence of minorities. But as I read my Bible, I don't read that there is such a thing as a minority who is less value than a majority. Amen? I don't see that. And it's killing a culture, and it's a culture that we need and can share a lot. The hidden message behind this is that if you're an African-American baby, you're less valuable and less likely to contribute to society. And I don't believe that for one second. I don't believe that. It's not in God's word. Amen? And, uh, and I don't see that. But this is the, the message that is, is in a subtle way being communicated to our people. Here's one statistic that I hate to even share. But it's true. And it's this, the last one. Nearly two out of every three women who have abortions claims to be a Christian. Two out of every three claim to be a Christian. And so it's very, very often I hear as we talk as Christians and we get together and we talk about pro-life or this or that, it's kind of on us versus them. It's, it's the world without their moral compass and us founded firmly on the word of God. And I hate to say it, but in general, as a church, as an American church, I had to say we are no longer founded on God's word, but we are with a, without a moral compass as well. Is that safe to say? Uh, and that's, that's what I get out of looking at this. And, uh, and so I think it's important for churches like ours to take a stand on this issue. And I think that's why it's worth spending the entire day working on this. There's one other issue I want to bring up today. The third issue is the issue of euthanasia. Uh, what I mean by euthanasia is the practice of intentionally ending a life in order to relieve pain or suffering. And so there's this idea that if a person then, if the value of a person comes in their ability to contribute to society, and they come to a, uh, to a point in their life where they're unable to contribute to society, and so society says it is time to end that life. Or if a person uh, comes to a point in their life where they say the value of life is based in my enjoyment of it, then they come to a point where they're, they're, they're no longer enjoying life, and they say, I would like to take my own life. And... And, uh, and because it's no longer serving the purpose of life. But when we live in a, in a world where there is no understanding of the purpose of life, there is no moral compass by which to guide which direction is north in our understanding of the value of life, you can see why these issues become possible possibilities and issues that, that are going on in our world. So these are the, uh, the issues uh, and so we have to ask questions like, is the, if the value of life is determined by its quality, then, then when is it okay to end that? Or if the termination of one person's life is going to make life more pleasant for others, can we take that life? And we see that happening uh, uh, it, around the world, especially where there's more of a socialized medicine, where they say, if, if we consider euthanasia an option, then we have the right to say, if we're, go- we're not going to cover the more expensive options, we're only going to cover the less expensive options. And so, so there's a lot of pressure being put on people. Why? Because it would be easier on their family for them to ha- have your money than for us to, or for them to spend it on, on, your, on your recovery. You, you get the issues that are going on in the world. And, and I know many of us would say, that would never happen here in the United States. We would never get to that point. Uh, but, I, but I tell you this, 
when there is no moral compass, the populace can justify any villainous behavior if it benefits the majority at the time. And we've seen it. We, saw, we, we just watched a video where we saw that happen as well. And, and even the, the, the act of, of attempted genocide is considered okay by some. Why? Because it was, it was okay to the populace at that time. We have to be very careful. So our culture has lost its moral compass. And I think it's because we've excluded God. We've taken all mention of God out of our culture. Listen to what Romans 1 Verse 18 to 23 says, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. What does that mean? It means taking God out of the equation. Acting as if there were no God. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The ability to, to take the truths, the things that we know are morally right, and we can suppress those. Why? Because we take, we've taken God out of the equation. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And change the, the knowledge of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And, 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 we, and we've studied the book of Romans together. You, you know where that goes. And it continues on into degradation. And it all begins with not recognizing God as being God. Not letting God be God in our minds and in our hearts. And so I think that, that for us then, we need to, to have this framework of, of morality that comes from an, a theological understanding. What that means, theo, theo just comes from the, the Greek word for God, and, and, uh, and logical means the logical arrangement of information about him. So it's the doctrine of God. And so we have to have a framework for understanding our moral choices that includes the existence and the authority of God. Amen? And so to do that, I want to set a little theological uh, framework um, and, and to understand this, God allows very, varying degrees of freedom and choice. There are certain issues in life where God has allowed us total freedom of choice, where we can, we can choose one thing over another without consequence. There's, there's total freedom. And you see this even in the Garden of Eden, where God created all of these trees, and, and he said, you can eat of any of them, right? There's total freedom. But there are things in life where God says, you have a limited amount of freedom, for example, you had the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he said, this is a tree, I'm telling you, don't touch it. Don't go after this tree. You can eat of anything else but not this tree. And so, so we see that there's a limited freedom. You can eat of it. They could choose to, but you, you would have a consequence that would come for it. Then there are other things where God does not give us any freedom at all. It's just part of the de decree of God. This is the way God has designed the reality of the universe and there's nothing we can do. We can shake our fist at God, but we cannot change it. And we find these things. So if you're taking notes, uh, maybe make a, make a, 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 a little uh, make a line in the middle and put on one side God's will. And on the other side, put, uh, put levels of freedom or just the word freedom. In. And I'm going to take the, 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 the titles of the God's will from a book called um, Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. But I want to relate it to this issue. So first, uh, we have what we call God's will of direction. 
God's will of direction. What I mean by this is simply uh, these are those areas of total freedom where we have a choice. In fact, the way that I'm going to word it today is, is we have a choice between right versus left, right? It's not, a, it's not a right versus wrong. It's a right versus left. Those are the, uh, the choices that we have uh, today. Uh, and and in, in those areas, we have, we're totally free to choose, right? We're, we're totally free to choose. If, for example, you could choose uh, if you want to go to U of M or if you want to go to MSU, Wait, that's a bad example because no one, God, no godly person would want to go to MSU. Um, that's a joke. That's a joke. But uh, no, but it's those choices. It's not a choice between something that God has forbidden and that God has has allowed. It's a choice between two things that God has allowed: right versus left. Okay, these are the types of choices, and in those areas, we're totally free. There's also what we call God's will of desire. God's will of desire is, is no longer right and wrong or right and left. It's, it's what's right and wrong. It's, for example, when God says, it is the will of God that you abstain from fornication, for example, in 1 Corinthians. We, we see commands in Scripture that say, that, thou shalt not, or thou shalt. And, and you find, then we know that those are the will of God. So when we make a choice that violates that, then, then, then we, are, we are making a mistake. We're committing an error. And, uh, and so what I call this limited freedom. It's limited in the sense that we have the freedom to, to disobey, but we don't have the freedom to choose the consequence for that disobedience. Does that make sense? So we're, we're limited in, in, our, in our freedoms. Whereas Adam and Eve in the garden could choose amongst any of the trees without any consequence. You choose of the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, there's a consequence that goes with it. And, uh, and so that's... That's what we're talking about here. And then there's God's will of decree. God's will of decree isn't about right and left. It isn't about right and wrong. It's just about the right of God. It's God's right alone. Why? Because he is the creator of the world. He is the creator of the universe. He is the one who sustains it. If you're alive today, it's because you're borrowing air from him, right? Your heart is only pumping because he has allowed it to pump today. The only reason we, we, we have to exist is rooted in him, Right? And so we have to understand there's the, this decree of God. And in these areas, we have no freedom. Uh, our existence, our intrinsic value, even our attributes and our identities are decreed by God. You know, God designed how you would be and who you would be since before you were born. Do you believe that? Yeah. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, this is, this is what we read. For you, talking about God... You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my, in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. So he's saying, before I even experienced days, before I was even an idea, God had formed me in his plan. They were already written in his books. It was a done deal. He knew that you, whoever you are, he knew who you were, were and he designed you to be exactly who you are today. This is part of the decree of God. And so when we find ourselves fighting this decree of God, when we're fighting those things that belong to God, uh, we, we find ourselves in a lot, in a lot of trouble. Uh, in fact, if you look back at the, the, the framework with which we're working, 
we, we see that if you, if you violate uh, God's will of desire, we, we call that disobedience. You disobey God. But when you try to violate the decree of God, you are playing God. You are, you are, you are, you are taking a position that belongs only to God. Does that make sense? And so it's with this theological understanding that we have to understand that when God says, I have decreed such and such, and we fight that, then we're putting ourselves in the position of God. For example, the Bible says that God determines the life and death of a person. Uh, Alan must have looked at my notes when he was preparing for his, uh, for his testimony. But I'm going to take you to Job, chapter 1, verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember what was going on in Job's life? This was a personal holocaust. Lives in his family were given to him, and they were taken away. This is in the context of the death of the, of the members of his family. And what did Job acknowledge in that moment? Their birth was predetermined by God. Their death was predetermined. The timing of their death was, was predetermined by God. Which means life and death belong to whom? To God. Those choices belong to God. And so that's why he was able in that difficult moment of his life to just say, I can surrender this up to the Lord. Why? Because it was never mine to begin with. It was never mine. That goes on. And if you look at uh, chapter 14, verse 5, we read this. Since his, he's talking about mankind, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. What is he recognizing? He's recognizing the sovereignty of God and saying that even though we think we are making all of these choices in life, God has put limits and we cannot cross those limits. And one of those limits is when we're born and when we're going to die. It's all up to the Lord. And there's nothing we can do about that. We can't add anything to it. Hebrews, for a New Testament reference, says the same thing. He says, and it is appointed for men to die once. But after this, the judgment. And in the context, I think the emphasis is on the word once. It is appointed unto man to die once. However, the truth is in the entire sentence. And that is, it is appointed unto man to die. And so there is a time to die. And that is determined by God. Life and death, life and death are in the, in the hands of God. So who gives life? Uh, who gives value to it? It is God that gives value to human life. And how does he do that? And I believe it goes all the way back to creation. And, uh, and so if we look at Genesis chapter 1, first, first chapter of, of the Bible. As God's laying down the foundational things by which we need to build the rest of our theology. In this foundational chapter, so we understand a couple of things. We understand, first of all, we didn't create ourselves. We are in the process of time and chance. We realize that there's a God who created us, right? And then we see as God created us, this is what we read in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle. Over all the earth and over all every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We see a, a strong distinction made between the animals, which are good. I mean, God did a great job creating the animals. In fact, after every day, what did he say? He looked at all of his creation and he said, it is good. But then he created man, and all of a sudden he's like, there's a distinction between the man. I want man to have dominion over all the animals. I don't want the value of a human life to be compared to the value of, of an animal life because there's something distinct, something different about mankind, and that is that he, unlike the rest of creation, reflects the image of the creator. You know, if, if last week we talked a little bit about self-image and some of those things and fearing of man and all of that kind of thing. Uh, it, we would not struggle with any self-image problems or self-esteem problems if we genuinely understood that our value as people who reflect the image of God. Amen? And, uh, and so we find, uh, we find this. You, you, you want to know where the sanctity of life comes from? It comes from God. Uh, we are valuable because we are made in the image of God. And so human life is valuable because we were made with a purpose of reflecting the praiseworthy attributes of God, our creator. And we're able to do that when we create. Now, we can't create in the same way God creates. God can create what they say in Latin, ex nihilo, out of nothing. I don't know anyone who can do that. But we can create. With the materials that God's given us, we can be creative and that blesses God. We reflect the image of God when we do that. Right? God is all-knowing. All we, re we reflect the image of God when we advance in the sciences and we, and we add to our knowledge. God is all-loving. We, we reflect the image of God when we can show compassion and love to other people. By the way, I believe that a lot of people that we say or we think don't contribute to society actually give an opportunity for us to show compassion and reflect the image of God. They have value. They have value. My, my dad was on the board of a home for, uh, for people with, with mental disabilities. And I went there on a missions trip, and, and I remember the man saying, the, the, rest of the, the rest of culture says that these people shouldn't exist. The rest of the, the, the culture says that, that they don't contribute to society, but I found just the opposite. And, uh, and, he, was so, and he, was so true, he was so accurate. I asked him afterwards some examples, and, and he talked about the, the, the disadvantages that they had as, as, as their mental capabilities weren't the same as yours and mine. But he talked about how they loved, for example, they were entertained by repetitious things. And so he'd look for jobs where they would have to do the things that would drive you and me crazy. And they ended up paying for their own, their own welfare, their own well-being. And, and he, they, they trained other ones to learn how to play music, musical instruments. And they would go around from church to, to church inspiring people to, towards love and compassion, not contribute to society. What is, what's, what's the world smoking? Is that, is that okay to say? <laughs> but something's not right. And, and so I look at this and, and we see that human life is valuable because we were made with the purpose of reflecting the praiseworthy attributes of God. That's why we're here. By the way, this is why. This is the foundational framework by which we understand the commands of God in the way we treat each other. This is why. It's because when we interact with other people, we're interacting with fellow reflectors of God's image. And we need to always remember that. Uh, th that's why it's wrong to take the life of another. As it says in, in Exodus 20, 13, thou shalt not murder. Murder is taking the life of someone. I do not have the right 
as a human being to make the decision to take the life of another person. Now, we could talk about capital punishment on some other day. And there, is a, there is a time where God extends to governments with limits. So, but we're, we're not talking about that today. We're talking about the right for one person to take the life of another. Why? Because it's rooted in the value, the intrinsic value of a person as they reflect the image of God. And that's why it's wrong to mistreat others based on their economic status. In Exodus 23, verse 6, it says, You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Just because someone's poor, you know, in culture, a lot of times they look at poor people like, well, they're not as valuable because they're not contributing as much to society, so they think, and, and, they, and so, so they're treated with less justice, right? This is why, in fact, it was this verse that inspired the writers of our laws to say that if a person cannot afford an attorney, what happens? One will be provided for you. And, I, and I'm glad that we have that in our laws because that reflects what the Bible says, that a person does not have less value because they're poor. Amen? Come on, say amen if you believe me, all right? Uh, and, uh, and so uh, let me know you're listening, right? But a person's life does not have less value because of their economic status, nor based on where they come from. Look at this. In, in Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34, we read, And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat them. So if a person comes from a different place, and, and, and you've got your own culture, and you kind of like your culture, and a person comes to you, they're going to bring their own culture with them. There might be a temptation to mistreat them, and the Bible says that's wrong. Why? It says in verse 34, The stranger dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. If you fear God, you're going to fear other people in the sense that, uh, not that you're afraid of them, but you're going to respect them and weigh their opinions and you're going to love them and you're, going, you're not going to mistreat them. And you're going to treat them just like you would treat someone that's more like you. Amen? And that, this is what Christianity is, 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 is based upon. This is the love that we're supposed to be showing to each other. And if we start living this way, in a culture that doesn't live this way, we're going to be a light in a dark place. And that's the good news of, uh, of all of this, is, is that we have the opportunity, since the world around us is so dark, to be a light. Amen? And, and we, we can show love in a, in a world like this. And so, and so we see that all of this is rooted in the idea that our value does not come from our abilities, it does not come from our contribution, it does not come uh, from our quality of life, it comes from God giving us the ability to reflect his image. And so that's what we, what we find. So what are the biblical responses then? And so I'd like to look at all three of these and come up with just a couple of answers. First, dealing with the, the issue of, of racism. I think Paul said it best when he was addressing the Areopagus in Athens. In Athens, they had all, all of their philosophers and they, they had all of their, uh, their philosophies going on and, and they met at the Areopagus uh, and Paul was addressing them one day. And this is what he said. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. By the way, to, to stand up in front of the Areopagus and, uh, and introduce yourself by saying, Men of Athens, uh, they know, they know who, whom he's quoting. And uh, it comes from Socrates' apology. Um, and Socrates, uh, who's being quoted here, um, basically stood before them and argued that, that all this belief in multiple gods can't be true and that there had to be one God, an unknown God, 
but there had to be one in control of everything else. That was his argument. Look what Paul says, verse 23. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. See what he's getting at? Yeah, this, this, this God that you, that you kind of know in the back of your minds exists and disproves all of the other gods. Here's one. And he goes on to say, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. There's a distinction between the real God, the one who created everything, and the, uh, the false gods that are created by people. That's his point. And there is authority that goes with that. Uh, and and there, there's, a, there's an understanding that we have to understand. There's a difference between the creator God and the created gods. It goes on in verse 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all, what? Life, breath, and all things. If you have life today, it's because God gave it to you. If you have breath today... It's because he's lending you his air. All the things that you have, all the things that you think you have, belong to him. And as Job said, when you go to the grave, you'll go to the grave without those things. Naked shall I go to the grave. And, and I think Paul says that very well. And then this is what he says in the same breath. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What does he say? What is he getting at? There's this whole concept that the Athenians had. This whole idea that there are multiple races is false. He's saying every human being came from one bloodline. There's one bloodline. And all of us our relatives. Did you know that? No matter how different a person's skin may look from yours, no matter what type of accent they might have that might be different than yours, uh, no, matter, no matter, we are all in one bloodline. And, and he uses that to say, all of us then have the same purpose as well. And what is that purpose? To know and glorify God as God. That, that's what we're here for. And so he said, this is the purpose for all humankind, regardless of, of, what, of what background, what ethnicity, what difference there is, of just being human. This is, our, this is our one task, one race. So what does that tell me? That tells me, number one, ignore skin color. Now, I don't mean in the sense of, we, we, people throw out the word colorblind, and, and like you have to actually pretend like you don't notice if a person's a different. That's not what I'm saying. Ignore it in the sense of valuing. That a person's value has absolutely nothing to do with skin color. Amen? It has absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, Because we're all of one race. But acknowledge and appreciate differences. We have cultural differences. And as people come from different places, they have something to add to our culture. This idea that we have the the best culture in the world uh, because I'm in it is a very selfish and egotistic way to live life. Is it not? Uh, it reminds me of a children's book where, where he said, uh, uh, this child said, I live on planet Earth, which is in the center of the universe. And I live in a country which is in the center of the planet. And I live in a state which is in the center of my country. And I live in a city which is in the center of my state. And I live in a house in the center of my city. And I live in a room in the center of my house. And I sleep in my bed in the center of my room. I am the center of the universe. <laughs> uh, 
And so what you find in that is, is that's how we kind of live life sometimes thinking. And, and yet there are things. We have a Karen population. They have a lot to contribute to us. Amen. We, we have a, a Hispanic group. We'll be meeting tonight at 6 o'clock. Uh, and they have a lot to contribute to, to, to us as a church. Uh, we, have, we have people from Africa. We have people from Germany. We have people from Russia. And, and, and they, are, they are the same as us. Believers who worshiping the same God, glorifying God as God. Amen? Amen. And that's what we're, what, why we're here. So we need to acknowledge the differences and appreciate the differences and learn from each other and, 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 uh, and look forward to the day when we will stand before God, as it says in Revelation, every tribe, tongue, and nation glorifying God together as one. Are, are you looking forward to that day? Looking forward to that? So ignore the, the skin color. Don't let that become an issue and acknowledge and appreciate our differences. That also means to acknowledge and appreciate the hurts that people have gone, uh, gone through because of what culture has done. We need to acknowledge that. We need to love, love on people and, and, and show them that we love them. Amen? We need to show that. With, with the, regarding abortion, um, I think the answer number one is, is to repent and desist. In other words, if, if, if you've gone through that, uh, then I would, I would say repentance and desist. That don't, don't participate in this practice, even though the culture tells you that it's okay. Don't participate in this practice. Now, I say this with a heavy heart because when I read a statistic that says one in three women have, then I, I would say that in, in the, there's way more than three women in here. So I would assume that there are some in here who have gone through uh, gone through this type of process and the toil and the, and the difficulty of this. And so I want to say something comforting to you, and that is this. God will never judge you for a confessed sin, period. He will never judge you for a confessed sin, period. Um, your life is sanctified. If you have breath right now, it's because God still has a purpose for you. God, God has allowed you to be on this planet. He still is, wants you to grow and become closer to him in this intimate relationship with him. And so I don't care what you've done in the past. If you've confessed that to the Lord, it is gone. We talked about this last week. Our sins are, are as far as east is from the west. You cannot go east and, and end up west. You, you, you can go east for eternity. You can go west for an eternity. Our sins are completely gone, and God will never hold you, hold you uh, accountable for a confessed sin, which means that for us as believers, we do not consider you a second-class Christian. In fact, there was uh, a, a man named Simon who began to feel that way, that, well, people with a, a cloudier past are worth less. They should be second-class Christians. And you know what Jesus said to that? He said in Luke 7, he, says there was, he gave an example. He said, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, he's talking to Simon, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? The very woman in question. She had a, a past uh, that, that included all sorts of sin. So do you see this woman? I entered the house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. That's, the, uh, that's what we need to understand. It's not the gravity of our sins that matter. It's the gravity of the forgiveness of God that matters. And so I tell you right now, if, if, if you're in here today, I, I don't want to tell you, to, to, I don't want to cover up sin like the world is trying to do and say that we should just convince you that you never did anything wrong and you should continue to do these practices. I'm not going to tell you that because I love you too much to lie to you when God's word is so clear. Amen? But at the same time, I want you to know that there is a forgiveness that will surpass by a million times plus. million times plus will surpass the level of your sin. And God knew all of this and in his decree, he still planned for you to live a life and for you to get closer to God and you to grow. And, and, and you are not a second class believer if you're in that situation. Amen? And if there, if there are others who believe that with me, say amen with me so that they know. We do not consider anyone here a second-class Christian because of their past. In fact, many times you become the best Christians because you love more when you've been forgiven more. Amen? Second answer to that question that I would say, or to that is to show love and compassion. Uh, Tom, Tom Hooker, if, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but it, he gave his farewell speech a few weeks back. As he finished his political career as a legislator for his district in, in Lansing. He's still in politics, but um, do you mind if I share that, Tom? Share this. In his closing speech with all of our legislators there, which was awesome, he explained his view of the sanctity of life. And many times, I know those who, who, who don't believe in the sanctity of life say, well, you, you're just judgmental Christians and you're just, you're just condemning people and, and people make mistakes and you're unwilling to forgive them and you're unwilling and, and that's what the world says and he diffused all of that by simply telling some stories about uh, how he was able to give refuge to women who were agonizing over the tough decisions that were, that were made surrounding the issue of abortion and, and he showed love to, to these people that are going through these difficult times, it gave them a home, showed them the same mercy that Christ showed on all of us. Amen? And that diffused the arguments and it opened up the ears of everyone listening so that they could hear the truth of the value of the sanctity of life with open ears. We as Christians need to start showing love and compassion in such a way that we can't, they can't turn their ears off to us. But if we come out and just preach... Uh, preach uh, hellfire and brimstone without the, 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 the mercy and grace of God, then we fail as Christians, right? When we give only half a message, we have to give the full message, and that is a message of love, a message of compassion, and, uh, and the value of human life, even the value of, of those uh, of guilty of grave sins. The point is, uh, is that we need to value all of life together. The last one, euthanasia, is talking about that. The answer, I'm only going to give one answer to this one, and that is dignify all. All human life, underscore all. 
all human life. Whether a person is older and incapable of of doing all the things that they were able to do in their young age, and they were able to contribute to society in a lot of ways, we fail to realize that in our acts of selfless service to them, they are still contributing to us by giving us opportunities to serve. The Bible says very very clearly in Leviticus 19, it says, You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. We show our respect to God by showing respect to those who have gone through the battles of life. And, and so if, if you're here today, if you have gray hair, or if you would have gray hair with, if you hadn't colored it, right, uh, we respect you. That shows you've gone through some things, and, and we respect you, and we value you. Uh, and, 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 and we, I'm, I'm starting to get a few of those myself. Um, and uh, so, so it's easier to preach, right? But I'll tell you, we, we value human life regardless. And there, should ne- there will never come a day where we say, you're too much of a burden for us to continue helping you. I hope that never happens in this church. Because we value and sanctify all of human life. So don't ever devalue life based upon the convenience to the family, based upon the contribution to society, the the capabilities, or even the quality of life. Why? Because all of that is being guided by a broken moral compass. But we should instead put God back into our theological framework and say, since all value comes from Him, all value of life comes from Him, as long as He has chosen to give breath to another person, then I'm going to value that person as a reflection of the image of him. And that's, that should change the way we live our lives. Amen? Today, I'm not going to ask you to come forward today. I'm not gonna, we're not going to sing a, a closing hymn or anything because I know sometimes, sometimes the, res, the, the biblical response to a message is to, to come forward and repent. Sometimes uh, the biblical res, re, response is to make a decision and make some type of commitment. Today, the, the, the biblical response is, is to either change or confirm this, this doctrinal belief that we understand of the value of human life. But I hope that the real invitation is going to show up the moment you leave these doors. I hope it's going to show up in, in when you have conversations with, with people about the value of life. I hope it's going to change the way you react when you see a person who's poor on the, on the side of the street and it says, we'll work for food. You know, we saw that all the time in Costa Rica. We're starting to see it more and more here in the United States as well. I hope it would change it. I would hope that it would change the way we look at a person who, who has come from a different country and they, they through an uh, immigration process, has been dropped into a country where they don't speak the language, they don't know the culture, and they don't know what's going on. I hope it changes the way we react towards them too. And I would hope that if when you when you find people who are who are battling with the question of whether or not to have a baby or not to have a baby, I would, my prayer is that you would show them love and compassion and that enough help that they would say we're going to let this this baby live uh, and and help them through the process. That's part of what the church is here for. Amen. So my invitation today is one that I'm asking you to take with you as you go out and and and, uh, and live it throughout the rest of the week. And with that, I'd like to close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my life. I thank you for the fact that, that even when I'm sinning, even when I'm not doing what I ought, you value my life enough to let me breathe. You value life enough to give me opportunities every morning 
to confess my sins to you and to get right with you. As Paul put it, to grope around in the dark looking for you. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be our our situation. I pray, Lord, that we would value life. And if any of these areas, maybe some some racism has crept up or, or, or disdain for people of certain cultures or, or not valuing the life of a child because of, of their potential being limited and capabilities being, being smaller. Lord, I, I just pray that we would repent of those things right now, that we would always look on people with dignity, not because they deserve it, but because they reflect you and you deserve it. And I pray this in Christ's name.